right, Marcus, we're going to go on a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> Ooh, a roller coaster. I love, yes. I love it. Okay, there's going to be a lot of ups. There's uh-huh. going to be a lot of downs. Got it. Uh, this is a story of Joy Division, so there's going to be a lot of those. Downs. Okay, so are you ready? Okay, we're going to get in. Are uh-huh. you ready? Sure. Ready? Wee. <laughs> that was fun. Let's do it again. Okay, ready? Wee. I think I'm off too. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Oh, and Unknown Pleasures listeners will love that one. (laughs) (laughs) We're here on Joy Division Part 3. Welcome. So when we last left Joy Division, the year was 1978. The band had taken a short break from playing gigs in an attempt to rework their sound and had come out of the hiatus with a distinct style not yet heard in the British punk scene. They had gone beyond what was the style of the time, and with a newfound confidence in what they had developed, Joy Division entered into a battle of the bands sponsored by Stiff and what is apparently Chiswick Records. Apparently. <laughs> Man, we didn't know that for a year, unfortunately. We, we went all throughout the whole damn series. It's Chiswick. It's Chiswick. No, it's Chiswick. Just take out the W. (laughs) Now, this show was a sort of showcase of Manchester bands so the hip London labels could see what the scene had to offer. And the labels were dangling a possible record contract for the winners. But even though absolutely no one was offered anything as far as a record contract went, as far as we know, the Manchester scene was taking this showcase deadly serious. Everyone wanted to play this gig. Not least of all, Joy Division. Problem was, though, there were between 12 and 17 bands slated to play on the same night, depending on who you ask. And when Joy Division showed up wanting to be on the bill, too, they were told they would be going on last. Now, if Joy Division was anything at this point in their history, they were surly. So they spent hours at the gig stewing in their anger about being put on last. And over the course of the night, the band, and particularly Ian, set about starting fights. The first target of their anger was Tony Wilson, the local celebrity who had first put the Sex Pistols on his TV show, So It Goes. As such, Tony had come to be seen as a stepping stone to the next level in the eyes of many Manchester musicians. Yeah, well, I mean, they were going to go after Tony when they were sitting in that room, but yes, they were angry, but remember, they were also drinking. <laughs> drinking a lot throughout the night. And imagine waiting four hours to go on. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yes, it is a lot. So they were, yeah. So they look at Tony across the room and they're just like, oh, gosh, I want to get to him, especially Ian. Because the fact is that they've been writing to Tony about their band and they felt like maybe a little resentful that he was picking bands around them Mm -hmm. to showcase them, but not them. I mean, Tony probably did get a lot of letters anyways. He got a lot of demos from bands. Of course. And, And besides his music TV show, So It Goes, like you said, it was. It already been canceled, thanks to Iggy Pop. <laughs> now, what happened with Iggy Pop? Why did Iggy Pop get this canceled? Oh, because they recorded a, a, a whole live show where Iggy uh, put a, a horse's tail in his butt, <laughs> and then he said the word "fuck" a couple times. Wait, that's put it, it though. Put it in it. his. When you say in his butt, do you mean just like in the back of his pants, or do you mean fully in his anus? I don't know. I didn't get to see it. It was canceled. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> But he did get a chance to like showcase a band like once a month at his, uh, you know, Granada Reports TV show. So it's like at least there was a chance. But Ian Curtis, he he didn't think of that while he was writing this strongly worded letter to Tony right like right across the room from him because he was going to hand it to Tony that night Mm -hmm. because he just wanted you. You know what I think? (laughs) 
I mean, I'm not even sure Bernard, Stephen, and Peter even knew about the letter. Yeah. Like they were just hanging out together, drinking pints after pints, and, and thinking like, oh, we got to get on the show right now. Uh, there's Tony. Uh, we got to get on Tony Wilson's show. Damn, fuck everyone. Yeah. Wait, wait, what's Ian doing? What, what is he doing? He's going up to Tony. He's talking to Tony. Oh God. Oh no, he's yelling at Tony. Yeah, he didn't hand him the letter. He just thought, oh, I'm gonna. Just tell him what the fuck I think right now. He called him a cunt. He called him a twat. He called him a fucking bastard, among other insults, and a wild gamble of confidence in his band. And all the while, Tony Wilson was thinking, you're the next band in the list, you fucking idiot. Like, you, yes, we know you're good. <laughs> he was about to... Tony Wilson had heard an ideal for living. Like, and he loved it. Yeah, and he loved it. And one of the reasons why he had come that night was to see Joy Division. And they were next up. He was about to get a hold of him and say like, hey, do you want to be on my show? And then fucking Ian Curtis comes and calls him a twat. And the funny thing is Tony's like, okay. <laughs> he was impressed by the bravado because <laughs> usually people kissed his ass. But even dressing down Tony Wilson didn't satiate the misplaced anger that was building to a fever pitch. Next, Joy Division took out their frustrations on a band called The Negatives. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, okay, we're still at the show, right? The Battle of the Bands is running long, which is not a surprise if you put on a marathon show of, what, 12 bands, maybe it's more. Insane. There's bound to be delays. We all know this. And, and maybe some cuts. And that was the problem. At this point of the night, 10 bands had already gone up and left, which meant most of the audience had already started leaving too. And the people in the staff are like, oh, we're going to have to turn off the lights at like 2 o'clock or something, 2 a.m. Uh, you know, we're not staying here all night. And this was infuriating to Ian and Peter. Like, they checked the lineup. They ran over. It's like, give me that piece of paper. Who's going on next? <laughs> the negatives? <laughs> the negatives are going on next? Because the thing is, the negatives were a joke band. Yeah. You know, they're comprised of Paul Morley, Kevin Cummins, and uh, Richard Boone. And these guys, Joy Division knew these guys. Like, Paul wrote reviews of their live shows, eventually getting Ian on the cover of Enemy magazine. <laughs> Kevin was a photographer who would shoot the band's iconic photos that got Ian on the cover of Enemy magazine. <laughs> you know, and Richard is the one who gave him their first gig, you know, the, the manager of the, uh, the Buzzcocks. Mm -hmm. So they were friends, but not yet. <laughs> not, not tonight. Tonight, not that night, yeah. they were bitter enemies. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all drunk, right? The negatives in Joy Division. It's past 1.30 in the morning. In Joy Division, they were not going to back down. So legend has it that Ian walked up to the dressing room the negatives were in and kicked the door open and marched right up to their noses and shouted, you're not going on next. You're not going on at all. We're next or else there'll be trouble. I think he poked them too. And the negatives... Trouble. <laughs> and the negatives said... Okay. Who okay, gives then. a shit? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, fine by us. We're trashed anyways. <laughs> Although Steven did say that the negatives went on right before Joy Division and took their sweetest time to get off stage just to be dicks. Mm -hmm. And even Paul, who was in the negatives, this joke band, uh, he said that they went on and also didn't go on. So it's a, it's a joke to this day, I guess. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but that's neither here or there because Joy Division finally got up on stage. Mm -hmm. Right before 2 a.m., <laughs> right before they were going to turn off the lights. And they played the angriest, most furiously energetic set of their lives. Like Ian took that aggression and just ran with it. Like he was the most compelling part of the show. And that included all the other bands. And it really amazed the audience, uh, the three or four people that were left. <laughs> uh, and one of them was Rob Gretton. 
who would become their future manager, because if you could tell by their lack of people skills, they desperately needed one. (laughs) So badly. Yeah, they needed someone to say, calm the fuck down. Stop calling the most powerful man in music in Manchester a cunt. (laughs) Like today or ever? (laughs) Ever. Stop it. And that's the funny thing about Joy Division is that, you know, the Ramones did the same thing where the fucking yeah, man, fucking yeah, man, where they just they'd piss each other off. That's true. Before the show to get the energy up. And then the, they always said the best shows they played were the ones where they were the most pissed off. Yeah. And this was Joy Division's like I, I, many people say it was Joy Division's first great show. And it was at 2 a.m. for almost nobody. But yeah. those who did see it were fantastically important to them later on. Now, even though Joy Division were well on their way to recording one of the most well-respected debut albums of the late 70s, they actually recorded an entire album before Unknown Pleasures that never officially saw the light of day until, you know, the Heart and Soul box set many years later. See, Ian Curtis was known to hang out at the RCA offices in Manchester on its lunch break, mainly because RCA had recently released groundbreaking albums like Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, Iggy's The Idiot, and Lou Reed's Transformer, and these were all albums that Ian in particular loved. Now, in the late 70s, the record companies were trying, as they always do, to capitalize on the next big thing, to package it, ship it out, and make as much money as possible in as short a time as possible before the trend dies. While we here in the U.S. were treated as such gems as Disco Duck. You ever heard Disco Duck? I've heard it. It's fun. It's just, don- it's just, a, it's a disc. It's exactly what it sounds it's like. It's disco- fucking Disco yes. Duck. It's terrible. <laughs> well, the next big thing in the U.K. in the late 70s was ostensibly punk rock. It's just that no one had quite figured out how to make a lot of money on it yet. And a soul label called Grapevine, who was distributed by RCA, was looking to capitalize on it. Now, for some reason, John Anderson, who is the head of Grapevine Records, got it in his head to marry punk with soul music. And when he set about finding a band to do this, the RCA offices said they knew of a kid named Ian Curtis who fronted a punk band called Joy Division. That's all it was. It was just because he was hanging around the offices. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's like, oh, yeah, that kid Ian, he's in a punk band, right? Like- yeah, it could have been anyone else. He just He's like, that guy over there. Where? I can't see him. He's standing behind a column. There, Ian, come out of there. Because remember, he's shy and awkward. Very shy, very awkward. Yeah, it just so happened that they were the, it was a lazy thing. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a kid that hangs out. Next time he comes by, we'll ask him about it. (laughs) And so Joy Division had a meeting with Grapevine to discuss the possibility of covering a soul artist named Nolan Porter, specifically his song, Keep On Keeping On.
Is that a great song? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is that a great song for Joy Division to cover? No. <laughs> Can you imagine Ian Curtis trying to sing that song? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, a couple people did. Keep on, it. keep it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. Yeah, so John Anderson, Mr. Anderson, he sits down with the band and says, like, yes, covered this song and he's like giving them a lot of records and stuff and the guys from the label said yeah if you cover this soul song this amazing song for grapevine records you can maybe get also a full-length joy division album yep. we'll let you record one too and we'll pay for it and we'll get the head of rca to listen to it and probably get you on the label and you could probably get an advance of twenty thousand dollars and and a record in paris yeah do you guys like paris all the perks that's door number one <laughs> and the guys are like yes yes okay we want door number one yeah <laughs> yes it also helped that uh john the, the head of grapevine he picked up the tab of beers and sandwiches at, at that meeting that they, they <laughs> Which had that had never happened for them before yeah they're like really we should have ordered entrees <laughs> why did we get sandwiches <laughs> they're like we, we were easily bought yeah is what they said like yeah. they, they were 20 they were starving yeah, and it also, you know, having all this dangled in front of them, because, you know, this is right after Iggy Pop had recorded, like, The Idiot. I mean, this is like Hansa Studios. This is after, you know, David Bowie had recorded Low. Like, they're th this is after fucking Transformer. Yeah, like, they're, like, they're, they're talking to those people that released that. They're talking to the people who make the albums that they love and make them how they think these albums should be made. This is artistic freedom. At least they think it is. Well, the one catch is the one cover song, but then it gets <laughs> weird. So the guys get into the recording studio and they record all their backing tracks. And throughout the day, they start to realize that this was a big mistake. John knew nothing about punk new wave music, any, any, anything about it. He just thought like, oh, this is just a way to make money. And the band also didn't know how to properly cover a song <laughs> because they even said so themselves. Like every time we would try to play a song, it would end up being a completely different song. Yeah, of course. So they were all arguing with each other a lot in the recording studio and it got desperate, especially when John kept trying to get Ian to sing like James Brown. <laughs> They even grabbed a bottle of whiskey and got him drunk to try to shake something loose. And they're like, Ian, keep drinking, keep drinking. He's like, I'm trying, I'm trying. But the band couldn't do what John wanted. It was it was frustrating for everybody. It was not a good idea. It was a, a horrible match. And on top of that, they had two days. That's yeah. it, you know. And, for a and, whole album. Yeah, for a whole fucking album. And, you know, and a couple of those songs, like, they'd written a week before. And they're there to and the thing is about Joy Division is that, yeah, they make groundbreaking music, but as they are not technically talented musicians, especially <laughs> yes. at this point. You know, like, of course, they get better later on, you know, specifically, uh, you know, Hooky and Barney, as they call them. Uh, they, of course, they do later on. But at this point in time, like, they're not the type of band that you can sit down and say, like, learn a song right now. Cover it. Fucking stamp it. Let's get all this fucking done. I mean, really, the only good thing to come of this whole debacle that became known as the Arrow Sessions uh, was, you know, like you said, you know, they tried covering Keep On Keeping On, uh, and they ended up coming with a new song all of their own, Inner Zone.
lifted uh, the guitar riff. Yeah. Yeah. And then they were like, kind oh, of. Kind a little. <laughs> I mean, they did the the best they could. Yeah. But yeah, they they kind of was like, oh, this is cool. Like grabbing like that that record and walking away from John. Like, thanks, we got a new song now. <laughs> I mean, the only it's it's got a soul that dun 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 dun. Like that's yeah. it's got a soul feel to it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely not keep on keeping on. Now, it could be argued that the version of Inner Zone we just played, that was from the RCI sessions, by the way. It could be argued that it's actually better than what ended up on Unknown Pleasures. You know, that's Inner Zone is a very famous song off Unknown Pleasures, especially when you consider the version we just played is completely unmixed and completely unmastered. It's very raw. But other than that one, the tracks recorded for the Arrow sessions were flat and wooden, too slow on some songs, too fast on others, and was an altogether bad representation of a band nearing the height of their creativity. It would have been a disaster if that album was released. So, with such a poor experience and a poor result, Joy Division was once again trapped in a bad situation. Just after the recording, though, the band was saved when future manager Rob Gretton came into their life. Rob Gretton was a DJ at a Manchester club called Rafters, and when he saw Joy Division at the Stiff Chiswick Challenge, he thought they were the best fucking band he'd ever seen in his life. He was one of the four people. He was. Yeah, yeah he was the guy behind the DJ booth. <laughs> yeah. well, one day, Joy Division guitarist Bernard Sumner was in a phone booth talking to drummer Stephen Morris after they both got off work. And it was at that point that a bearded man with glasses yanked open the door and told Bernard... I watched you at the Stiff Chiswick night. I want to be your manager. Why do managers always announce themselves like that? <laughs> did, did Ken do that to you guys? Did he pop out of a trash can like the chief of Inspector Gadget and say like, I want to be your manager. What do you think about holiday socks? <laughs> somewhat, somewhat, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ken better beware. There's managers hiding in the stairwells. Because <laughs> this is a story we tell a lot of yeah. when the manager finds you. Yeah. That's usually how it happens. So anyway, yes, Rob loved Joy Division because finally there was a band doing something different. And Rob was DJing at Rafters, yeah, but he also had experience managing bands. Like he worked with Slaughter and the Dogs, then The Panic, you know, Steve Broderdale's uh, band. Mm -hmm. And that was all glam rock stuff and it was fine, but Joy Division had their own thing going on. So Bernard told Rob, yeah, come to rehearsal at TJ Davidson's where there are like Wednesdays and Sundays. And that's when we rehearse and then you can talk to all of us in, in the band. So a couple of days later, the band were there rehearsing when Rob walks in and just stands there watching them as they play. And the rest of the band was like, okay, <laughs> and played until the end of the song. Then everyone just stood there for a minute. <laughs> so. Oh, right. Yeah, this is, this is Rob. I told him to come here and meet us. He wants to manage our band. Did I not mention that? <laughs> Bernard forgot. He's a, little, he's a little forgetful, that guy. Of course. That's why they need a manager. <laughs> So yeah, exactly. I didn't write it down. We had an appointment. And everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let's go down to the pub and we'll talk business. So Rob and the band, they go down, and after like a couple pints and the guys explaining their whole band history, Rob was like, okay, I think I got it here. So you sent bad copies of your music to every recording company in town. <laughs> your EP can barely make a sound when you play it because you press it on a seven inch, which made the band go broke and you recorded a whole album with RCA that you hate. Is that, is that right? Did I get that all down? Did you sign anything with them? Yeah. Yeah, something about publishing rights. We didn't think about it. And Rob is like, oh, geez, okay, okay, all right. 
And also, why is there all this Nazi imagery <laughs> on your EP? I'm just looking at it right now. You know that people are calling you guys Nazis? And the guy's like, yeah, we know. And he's like, it's not funny. It's not funny at all. And the guys are like, no, it's meant to be ironic. You know, shocking, punk. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need me. <laughs> it's stupid. You guys obviously aren't Nazis. You're idiots. That's what you are. <laughs> And that's what they got from Rob, a smart and brutally honest guy. He was very organized, you know, carrying his notebook with ideas for the band. And even though he was only like a few years older than them, he like had to play dad to them when they needed it. Yeah. So unfortunately, Terry was a little hurt by being replaced so <laughs> oh. easily as band manager. Oh, Terry Mason, poor Terry, the Carl Pilkington. Terry even said, he actually said something about it. He's just like, so... Rob has a little bit of managerial experience. So what? And so he has his own telephone. Big deal. <laughs> Terry was not happy. But you know what? Rob pulled him aside and said, you know, we, we need you. We need a sound engineer for live shows. We need a sound guy. And Terry's like, I don't know how to do that. And Rob's like, well, you can learn and you'll be great at it. And so Terry did and never really got good at it. He doesn't know how to do anything. But Terry was very important to the band in so many ways. And they all say it over and over again. <laughs> Everyone needs a Terry, a co-founder, uh, just the, or the kind of the organizer, the guy who keeps things going on, the, 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 the guy who's there for you. Well, and He was essential throughout all of this. He's very encouraging. That's what you need. Yeah, you need that. You need a guy. You need a guy that you know, a guy that's kind of funny and always. It's always pushing you along because it's. It feels good when you have someone that believes in you that much that he'll do anything to be a part of it. You know, and that's what Terry Mason always was. He would always to to just to be a part of this band. He believed in it that hard. He would do anything. He's like, well, I can be the drummer. Well, I can be the manager. Well, I can be the sound guy. Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to be the sound guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because I don't want to quit you guys, which I get. So they're slowly getting their people together. Yeah. So Rob got a hold of the master for the Ideal for Living EP, and he pressed it as a 12-inch as it should have been in the first place. And he replaced the Hitler youth sleeve with a black and white picture of some appropriate industrial scaffolding. It's very Joy Division. Right. The yeah. aesthetic is being Very Mancunian, built. yes. Yes, very Mancunian. Rob then convinced Rabid Records to buy and distribute the new pressing of An Ideal for Living, which was a huge relief to Ian, who still owed the bank 400 pounds for the loan he'd taken out under false pretenses. Oh, that's right. Yes. We're in debt. <laughs> We're in debt and we lied about it. <laughs> Rob Gretton also managed to get the boys out of the RCA deal, offering John Anderson $1,000 for the tapes and paying for it by taking any gig money earned by the band and putting it into a pot until that $1,000 was raised. And he also did a little bit of finagling. Even though they did sign something, he discovered that it had been backdated, like the contract had been backdated. Yeah. Uh, so it was illegal. So boom, no more publishing rights. No, like they didn't have to give the publishing rights to fucking shadow play or transmission to RCA. Yeah, yeah. It was like something along those lines. And also the fact that Rob had to work really hard to convince everyone that they weren't Nazis. <laughs> he had a lot of work to do. A lot of work. And with that, Rob proved his worth to the band immediately and solidified himself as the man who saved Joy Division from being known only as the also ran Manchester punk band with the Nazi EP that sounded like shit. Hence my point. Yes. <laughs> he had them play regular gigs. He made sure they were known amongst the promoters. And he helped foster the band's relationship with Tony Wilson, which needed just the tiniest bit of massaging ever since Ian Curtis had called him a twat. <laughs> 
he still respected it, but you still got to massage that relationship a little bit. And that's what Tony, actually Tony Wilson said that that was the only time Ian Curtis was ever mean to him. Said for the rest of their relationship, he was as sweet as a lamb. So with Rob Gretton at the helm, Joy Division finally began to come into their own. At the end of May, 1978, the band played the Mayflower Club in Manchester. There, they debuted a song that even in soundcheck made the crew and the other bands stop and take notice, which never, ever happens. Yeah. As someone who's done hundreds of sound checks, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and the reason why it happened this time, though, was because that song, about a month old and already fully realized, was Transmission. doubting that Transmission is one of the best Joy Division songs ever. Yeah. It's one of their best songs. So you might be asking, why if they had Transmission at this point in time, did they not put it on Unknown Pleasures? Where you'd think it would be a fucking hit (laughs) on the (laughs) album. Well, I'm going to solve a little bit of a mystery for all you Joy Division fans out there as to why so many of their best songs were not on the two official albums that Joy Division released when they were still active. The reason why is because the fans thought that putting a single on an album was cheating the fan. That if they sold a single and a fan also bought an album that had that song on it. Get repeat. That was repeat. So they released a lot of their best songs, Transmission, Digital, uh, Dead Souls, Atmosphere, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Love Will Tear Us Apart. They were all released as singles because that's how the band wanted it. And it's, let's say, not the best business plan. No. <laughs> no, they're, they're not known for their business acumen. No. <laughs> they, are, they are not. But even though, you know, they had Transmission at the time, they had a lot of the songs for Unknown Pleasures, that's not to say that Joy Division were immediately met with throngs of adoring fans from the get-go just because they had a few good tunes. Throughout most of 1978, and even into some gigs in 1979, Joy Division still struggled to find an audience. Yeah, they had so many fruitless gigs. Many. 
very unproductive gigs, I think. And part of that was sheer determination to keep playing as many as possible for exposure. You know, keep practicing, even if their bookings wouldn't cover gas money, Yeah, which it didn't a lot. So they said yes to everything they came across. They even begged for whatever shows, like one night being a talent show night <laughs> for the uh, for the old, older uh, local crowd. <laughs> and they were introduced as the Joy Division, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Joy Division. <laughs> exactly. And then they go on and play. And after a song, the MC goes up to them. It's like, the next song is your last song. <laughs> then you get out. Good heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was this one gig in Huddersfield where they lugged all their equipment up really steep winding stairs just to play to one person in the audience. Oh. One person who stood there and left halfway through the set. <laughs> you didn't stay. <laughs> oh, that's so awkward. Have you ever been in a show where, have you ever gone to see a, a show where there was only one person or I you were the only person in the audience? Performed. So many times. Me too. Stand up comedy. I, I remember so many times in front of two, three people, or whatever the the producer tries to reel in from the street or something. Or or sometimes one time the producer had his parents, <laughs> and it was only that them two right in front, and I'm just sitting there and like, wow, I know how. Bob Jr. gets his wonderful hair. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you don't know what to do, but you just keep doing it. I know. Now, and I played so many fucking gigs to, yeah, one, two people. Sometimes we would play to an empty room where we would yeah. we'd show up, uh, set up all of our equipment. Nobody would be there, not even our friends. And we would just treat it as a rehearsal. Yeah, like this is just, like, we're just going to rehearse a live show right now. But that's what you got to do. If well, you want to be in a band, you got to get good at playing live. That's what Joy Division had to do all the time. Like they did a gig at Oldham Tower Club because uh, they heard from another band that it was great and they sold it out the month before. So they're like, oh, this is great. We're so excited about it. And they booked it for 30 pounds, which is pretty decent money. Yeah. And when they got there, yes, no one showed up. Not a soul. The manager was the only guy there. And when they're all just standing there like, okay, so no one's here. And the manager's like, well, you have to go on. <laughs> Do you want your 30 pounds? You're going on now. And so they're like, okay, we want the money. So they played. And after their third song, the manager starts sweeping up what's supposed to be the dance floor <laughs> and goes up and it's like, Do you guys know any Hendrix? And they're like, no, sorry, we don't. And he's like, that's a shame. <laughs> and then the, they play another song, and then it's like, sweep, sweep. Hey, are you sure you don't know any Hendrix? <laughs> wow, that's a shame. But you know what? Halfway through their set, two punk girls came in and sat down to listen to the show. And between songs, one of the cute girls came up to them and said, hey, are you the Frantic Elevators? And they're like, no, we're, we're Joy Division. And the girl turns to the other girl and says, see, I told you this wasn't the place. <laughs> God. And then they left. <laughs> humiliation after humiliation. And the guys played three more songs in an empty room, packed up, got their money yeah. and went home. And uh, the guys were obviously not part of the local music scene. Remember, we talked no. about this uh, in the last episode. They're very much outsiders. So they had to settle for pubs and clubs of West Yorkshire, like usually on dead nights in the middle of the week, like on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So sometimes they would, if they could, they would get their girlfriends and, and Debbie, the wife, the wife to stand up front and- like, Ian's wife. <laughs> stand up and just kind of like pretend to be groupies and stuff like that because they really lacked a following for it for a while, at least at first. Yeah, they really did. I mean, it, they were slowly starting to build people who believed in them. Like it started with Terry Mason, then it moved on to Rob Gretton, and then- it was Tony Wilson, 
because all of this started to change when Joy Division was given a physical space in which to grow as performers. See, in Manchester in the late 70s, the clubs were mostly discos. But when punk started to break in the UK, places like the Electric Circus began popping up. But when punk started getting a bad name in England, of course, because of the Sex Pistols, got big because of the Sex Pistols, then got a bad name because of the mm-hmm. Sex Pistols, the local councils started shutting clubs like Electric Circus down. And before long, just about the only place where a band like Joy Division could play locally was Rafters. But that all changed when Tony Wilson, dismayed at the lack of venues for punk bands to play in Manchester, decided to become a force to be reckoned with in the world of live music. Yeah, because remember, he was still wanting to hang on to the local music scene. Like, his So It Goes show was canceled. Uh, so he figured, like, well, I still want to hang out with these guys, even though you guys are a whole bunch of, you know, <laughs> you're very drunk, all of you. So he started managing a band with his friend, a TV actor named Alan Erasmus. Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Or Razzers. Yeah. I think they call him. They call him Razzers. They call him Razzers? Razzer. Just one. There's one Razzer. Just one Razzer. Okay, yeah. yeah Razzers sounds like a, a stupid fucking restaurant like a fucking Applebee's or something. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Razzers. Welcome to Razzers. Can I take your order? (laughs) They, so they, I was thinking more like, uh, what's a porn one? Uh, (laughs) What do you mean a porn one? Brazzers. Brazzers. (laughs) This doesn't, none of this matters. None of this matters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Alan (laughs) and Tony, they put together uh, this band with Vinnie Riley, uh, the Drudy column, and as co-managers, they went around looking for gigs for the Drudy column. (laughs) (laughs) Such a bad name. And they noticed, they noticed that there weren't many places to play. You see, like you said, a lot of places were getting shut down. And also the Manchester punk new wave scene was small and just popping up in a couple places here and there. It wasn't very focused. So Tony and Alan figured, let's set up a club ourselves, almost like a clubhouse. We put on the shows, we book the bands we're working with, and we give life to this Mancunian punk culture here. Well, that's what Tony Wilson always said. He said, if I was guilty of anything, it's an overabundance of civic pride. Because uh, he very you much... best. <laughs> I love him, but he is a bastard. He's such a bastard. Yeah. He's very funny. Yeah, he's uh, But he, uh, he, he loved Manchester. He truly loved Manchester. He truly believed in Manchester. And he believed in it as a town that could produce uh, great art. Uh, And he did his damnedest at every turn to make that happen. He convinced the owner of the Russell Club in Manchester's inner city to give them every other Friday for an initial run of two months. And Tony and his co-conspirators gave the show the Manchester appropriate name of The Factory. Yeah, that was Alan's idea. Uh, Alan saw a sign saying like factory clearance or factory closing or something like that. And he suggested like, how about factory? Like how industrial Manchester is. And, you know, it goes with that theme. And instead of a factory closing, there's going to be a factory opening. Oh, cool. <laughs> so they booked. How this- clever. <laughs> <laughs> We've been watching a lot of The Crown. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun at home with posh British accents. Uh, yes. <laughs> All night. <laughs> so Alan and Tony, they booked the space and now they need to advertise. And that was easy because Tony had just met a young college student named Peter Saville at a Patti Smith concert. You see, Peter came up to Tony and told him, I want to be your graphic design artist because one of my best friends is doing design work for the Buzzcocks and he's doing really well and I'm jealous and I want to do something like that too. (laughs) So Tony said, okay, you can design the poster for our new factory opening. Do whatever you want with it. Just make sure it has the bands that are playing with the dates of the four Friday night shows at the Russell Club. And Peter's like, 
Got it. So he got to work. He took a sign he found at his college workshop that said, use hearing protection. He thought that's perfect. That could be the industrial symbol of sound. You know, factory, a factory of sound in a sleek black and yellow design. It's perfect. It'll make sense to the people who matter. So once Peter got the poster for the shows done, he ran it over to Tony and it was perfect. The poster was perfect. It was exactly what the new factory club needed, except that Peter got it to Tony after the second show of the four (laughs) shows that were on the poster. (laughs) And he also misspelled Russell Club with one L on the Russell part. (laughs) But other than that, it was perfect. It it is. And and I think uh, there's a scene about it in 24 party people where where I think Tony Wilson's like, well, I guess we'll make this a memento <laughs> of, of the show that was missed. Yes. Yeah, that's and, fact one. Yes, exactly. It was cataloged in the factory as FAC1, fact one, the first piece of work in their company history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every single thing that factory records ever produced, whether it was posters or records or books, it was always FAC, and then it had a, a number after it. This week's episode of No Dogs in Space is brought to you by DoorDash. Between researching, writing, recording, and watching really lowbrow reality TV, we're a busy household. That's why when it comes to mealtimes, we let DoorDash do its thing. DoorDash is the app that brings the food you want right to your door. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your favorite local go-tos or choose from the national joints like Wendy's or 7-Eleven or whatever. And get this, ordering is child play. Just pop open the app, pick what you want, and your food will be left safely outside your door with DoorDash's contactless delivery option. That's right, DoorDash deliveries are now contactless to keep the communities we operate in safe. Sound like a good deal? Well, hold on to your hat because we've got something just for you. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code NODOGS. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code NODOGS. Don't forget, that's code NODOGS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. DoorDash, your favorite restaurants delivered. So once Tony established a club night, he started managing even more bands. Among others, Tony Wilson managed Manchester punk funkers, A Certain Ratio, (laughs) heard here in a recording from 1982. That's funny. You guys are a bunch of punk funkers. Punk funkers. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Acquired taste. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It very much is. Yeah, yeah. Certain ratio, it's, it's an acquired taste, and most people do not acquire it. Uh, <laughs> but out of all the bands Tony Wilson supported during this period, Joy Division was certainly near the top, and they began regularly playing gigs at Factory, honing their sound and supporting bands like Suicide 
who were coming through town. I know. They were very excited. They're like, Alan Vegas right there. We're opening for Alan Vegas. It's Marty Rev is right there. Holy crap. That was after uh, Suicide. Uh, remember their symphony of booze? Yeah. Um, when they when they opened for The Clash. Yeah. That was, yeah, because we had talked about in our Suicide series where, you know, Suicide, when they finally went out on their own, people fucking loved them. Yeah, they and, had the headline. Yeah, they headlined and, you know, and they headlined one of the first uh, factory nights. Once the nights really started catching on, Tony Wilson got into the record business proper and co-founded Factory Records, the label with famously the world's worst business model. Have you looked at all business models? <laughs> as far as the record business goes, yeah, it's the worst business model possible. All right, well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's honest and it's got a lot of good intentions. So all this time, Tony had been, well, the thing is, Tony had been hanging around Rabbit Records, like the, the offices there, kind of like seeing how everything was working, mm -hmm. you know, kind of taking some mental notes. Because remember, he was interested in getting his hands on everything music related, especially like live stuff and recording stuff now. So one day he got a call from this DJ and club owner who's actually very legendary in Liverpool named Roger Eagle. Now, Roger wanted to put out a compilation 12-inch album with Tony and put on songs by bands from Liverpool and Manchester. So it'd be like one side would be all the Liverpool bands, uh, Roger Eagles like bands, and then the other side would be Tony Wilson's Mancunian bands. So Tony was all about this idea. But as he was thinking it over one Saturday night after he dropped acid, <laughs> he had a vision of the album. It, it was, Instead of it being a 12-inch, it was going to be two discs two seven inch records and that's what he wanted and he wouldn't budge from that and since roger and tony couldn't agree on that tony just went ahead with it himself he's mm -hmm. like okay i'm gonna take the inheritance i got from my mother his mother unfortunately passed a few years before and i'm gonna fund factory records mm -hmm. so the business plan for factory records was it's, it's very simple it's, right yes it's very simple and it is it's got a lot of good intentions they sign a band to record their records at factory records expense with the band having total artistic control with their music, then release a record and split the sales 50-50 with the band. Except the band didn't really sign anything. You see, the bands don't sign anything. There's no contract. There's It's just a verbal agreement that we're friends. Except for that one contract that they say that Tony signed in blood that said that there would be no contracts. <laughs> Legend has it. Yeah. And the biggest part of this deal, though, is that the bands own their own music. The copyright on whatever they do together, they can walk away with it at any time. So to quote Tony Wilson, he said, the musician owns everything. The company owns nothing. All our bands have the freedom to fuck off. <laughs> and with that, Tony Wilson went down in history as the man who created the worst business model <laughs> for a record label ever. Yes, you are correct. It is the worst now that you look at it. But you know what? We can worry about that later. We, we're, and we're definitely going to worry about that quite a bit later. But for now, they got to record and release their first record. You know, the Factory Sampler EP listed as FAC2, Fact 2. Mm -hmm. And so the bands were chosen for that sampler. There was Darudi Column who are a Manchester post-punk band named for an anarchist military unit in the Spanish Civil War. Something about situationists. <laughs> there was a, the craftwork-like Cabaret Voltaire, who would go on to do great things in the world of electronica. And, of course, there was musical comedian John Dowie, who contributed, or maybe it's Dowie. Dowie, Dowie, Dewey, I don't know. Let's just cover all of them. John Dowie, Dewey, Dowie. He contributed the most <laughs> tracks out of any artist on the sampler. He contributed three including the baffling song, Hitler's Liver. How is it? <laughs> Dead. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been having trouble with the texture of my meat It won't hairify my chest or odorise my feet The butcher's window disappoints with snakes a tint of mud I sink my teeth into the flesh but cannot taste the blood The pavement was resounding to the stammer of my feet Slugging through the city trying to find a place to eat was obnoxious and he showed me to me place I looked around and saw a person filling up each face With Maco meat Tastes real sweet Tomorrow the world and a chomp-choo-chomp-choo-pow There's a, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a British tradition of, you know, punk bands in that vein, like Ian Drury and the Blockheads and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and it also, you know, shares some with certain like New York punk bands as well. Uh, it's a, it's got a punk feel. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. But the most impressive tracks on the Fact Who sampler by far were from Joy Division, who set themselves apart immediately with the sampler's lead track. With a binary drum beat of one, two, one, two, one, two, or zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, the song lived up to its title. Even the lyrics themselves were binary in their commentary of depression closing in. Day in, day out, day in, day out, zero, one, zero, one. Come on, this song, you know this fucking song, it's digital. <laughs> yes. Very simple. Yeah, it's and perfect. So very fucking good. But perhaps the reason why this recording is so much different and so much more impressive than anything Joy Division had ever done before was that this song was their first pairing with a, let's say, unconventional producer named Martin Hannon. He's a free spirit. All right. <laughs> he was yes, he was very eccentric. Yes, he 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 had that uh they, they described as a trampy hippie look, mm-hmm. you know, big dark curly hair, always chain smoking and loved to smoke pot, especially when he was working. Mm-hmm. He was like a, they, they call it like a wizard behind like the, the mixing board with like just smoke everywhere around him. <laughs> <laughs> you see, Martin Hannett, he started out uh, definitely just straight out the gate, like into music. Like he was a bassist for a couple of bands. He was putting on a lot of shows. Then he started working in sound engineering and got kind of a 
kind of a big name around town when he uh, produced the Buzzcocks' uh, first EP, uh, Spiral Scratch, in 1977. So Tony obviously needed Martin for for Tony's new record label, for, for Factory. So he actually took Martin from Rabbit Records, where mm-hmm. Martin was a partner in, <laughs> and said, now you can be a partner here at Factory, and you can be our in-house producer. Right. And Martin's like, yeah, I, ha- I he has free reign to do whatever he wants. And that's the beauty about Tony's company is that everyone can just do whatever they want. It's a creative space. So the band Joy Division, they, they went along with whatever Martin said when they were, went to record. You know, he would change some of the song arrangements and he'd direct the guys to play, like, play a riff or two. OK, here. OK, now go to the next thing. Like he was changing their parts sometimes, which didn't make sense to them at the time when they were recording. But they just went along with it because they're like, wow, you know, Tony and Alan believe in us and then we have Martin here so we're just gonna do whatever you know because Martin wasn't just a press record producer kind of guy like he had ideas and he desperately wanted to implement them because as I said he's the wizard behind the council (laughs) and and, and he also always wanted to mix the tracks himself at night because of the vibes the vibes (laughs) the vibes at night are different hell yeah I mean he was a uh, I mean to to kind of make it an understatement, he was a colorful character. I mean, if this tells you anything, Andy Serkis played him in the movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this, there was definitely a, a spark to Martin Hannett. Now, a few weeks before the factory sessions, Martin Hannett had gotten a hold of a prototype of a digital delay rig that some friends at an electronic audio company in Lancashire had developed. See, delay had been in use for years in audio recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, hell, they used it in Sun Studios. But... Never quite how this magical little black box was doing it. Instead of just an echo of a signal with significant decay on each return, the digital delay produced by this little box bounced back the signal completely intact. Now with Joy Division, Martin Hannett was using the digital delay to greatest effect on the drums, giving them a harsher, almost otherworldly sound that was subtle yet essential. On digital, he used it so sparingly that you'd have a hard time telling he'd done anything at all. But on Joy Division's debut album, he'd use it to much greater effect, which went a long way towards defining the sound of drums in the 80s, particularly in what became known as New Wave. He was creating the future. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right there, right in front of them. Yeah, right in front of these fucking kids. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Joy Division were getting more and more gigs because of Rob's direction and because the factory nights were drawing crowds in the hundreds. But since the band was playing so much, they ended up crisscrossing Manchester and nearby Bradford quite a bit. And the band usually ended up passing through the red light districts of those cities. I think last podcast on the left listeners know where I'm going with this. As it turned out, though, driving a big van around Bradford and Manchester late at night in 1978 was suspicious behavior. It's very specific, (laughs) too. Very specific, because by October of that year, eight women had been abducted from those districts and murdered with a brutality that hadn't been seen in England since the days of Saucy Jack. (laughs) You're a naughty one. (laughs) Yes. Saucy Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah, well, Peter, he, remember, they had to always, like, hire these uh, vans all the time and dent them and then pay the insurance for them. So they're like, 
Forget that. Peter, he bought a used transit van just for them, for the band, a blue van to fit all the band's equipment in. And he would drive with Terry at, you know, their head roadie now and maybe their sound guy now. (laughs) While the rest of the band and Rob would go into Stephen's car and they would have fun mooning each other on the road and throwing empty beer cans at each other's car. You know, that was their their little caravan to gigs, you know, going from one place to another around West Yorkshire. But one morning, Peter got a knock on the door. There were these two police officers who wanted to know who the owner of the blue transit van was. <laughs> and Peter said, yeah, that, that's, that's me. Is this about the beer cans? <laughs> and the police like, no, uh, it's that your van has been seen in the red light districts of various neighborhoods where several women have been abducted and murdered. We're looking for the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> and... Hey, Peter, why do you look so nervous? <laughs> and Peter's like, no, 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 I play in a band. We travel a lot for gigs. And so the police is like, all right, well, what's the name of your band? And it's like, Joy Division. Never heard of them. Uh, yeah, I know. We're, we're up and coming. <laughs> Sounds we're, a little fishy. We're pretty big in the red light districts, I guess. Uh, but, you know, you'll hear about us soon. And so the police, like, scribbling, like, you know, in their notepads are like, okay, we'll look into these places you say you're band plays in. <laughs> and then those cops went straight to also to Stephen's house because his license plate was also marked down. And according to Peter, Stephen freaked out when the police came and got all nervous and twitchy. <laughs> so they arrested Stephen and brought him in as a suspect of the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> and Stephen's mom had to go and bail him out. And now there's some doubts to how truthful this story is, but, yeah. but we're printing the legend because it's hilarious. <laughs> Stephen doesn't mention it at all but peter is adamant about it that this happened yes and i have no doubt that they were both questioned uh because that during the yorkshire ripper investigation that was part of what they did is they canvassed those cities uh to an insane degree they talked to anybody that was in yeah, the red they, light dead. they talked to peter sutcliffe the actual yorkshire ripper yeah, multiple did, times that's what i was gonna say didn't they investigate him like a bunch of a times a bunch of times yeah <laughs> no it must be that peter guy <laughs> well he did have a beard <laughs> The only beard in punk rock at the time. Peter, yeah. As far as I could see. Yeah, they started that trend. So after that whole situation, whatever it might have been, Joy Division traveled to London for their first gig in the big city, playing the Hope and Anchor, which was, that was the dam's home base. Yeah. This, however, would end up being one of the worst nights of the band's life for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, well, after months of trying, Rob finally got the band a gig in London. You know, the big city. And this was on December 27th, 1978. So, and the day already started out badly for for the gig because uh, Bernard woke up sick with the flu that morning. But obviously you have to go. You have to go and do it. I, London. I, I've, I've done it with a fever. Yes, I get it. No way were they going to cancel a gig in London. This is a big thing. They're finally going to the big city. So Bernard climbed into Stephen's car, like coughing and sniveling and shivering <laughs> with, his, with his sleeping bag. He brought his sleeping bag from home. And he figured, at least I'd try to get some sleep on the way there, which he really couldn't because everyone was smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like moaning, like, can you guys stop it? And they're like, if you don't like it, roll down your window. And he like rolls it down. And it's just, like freezing cold air in his face. <laughs> so he was very miserable. Yeah. And he took that sleeping bag with him everywhere yeah, yeah. like it's it it's dirty after it's a like while. The, it's like the fifth member of the band <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, so the band gets there uh, four hours later on that road, and they brought down all their equipment to this basement bar, and that night they played for literally one guy and his dog. Oh. That's, that's what Bernard said. It was one guy and his dog, and the dog didn't like them. <laughs> and Because re- this is December 27th. This is two days after Christmas on a Wednesday night. No oh. one's out. Plus, the Hope and Anchor, they didn't have any heating, so Bernard just stood there playing as he's dying in the freezing cold basement and miserable because every time Stephen would hit a cymbal like a little hi-hat he was just like ah, ah. <laughs> my head is swimming my head really uh. Uh. nobody was happy everyone was in a really shitty mood yeah after the show like you said everybody was in a bad mood but Ian seemed particularly bothered see while Ian could be aggressive to people outside of the band I mean never that bad but still a little aggressive he usually didn't take out his anger on the other boys in the band this night however was different after the show, Stephen, Bernard, and Ian got in a one van and headed on home, while Peter drove the blue one. Stephen had been volunteered to drive, while Bernard, still wrecked from the flu, wrapped himself up in his sleeping bag in the back while Ian sat next to him. Suddenly, Ian started tugging on Bernard's sleeping bag, demanding he give it to him. Bernard weakly protested, but Ian suddenly yanked it away and inexplicably wrapped it around his head. He then growled like a dog and started punching wildly, hitting both Steve and the windshield, growing so violent and out of control that Steve pulled over because he knew something was terribly wrong. Once stopped, they carried him out of the van and laid him out on the side of the road, waiting for the spell to pass and knowing that Ian Curtis had just had his first seizure, or to put it in British terms, his first fit. As soon as he regained control, Curtis was taken to the hospital where they confirmed the band's suspicions and a month later he was officially diagnosed with epilepsy and prescribed a combination of phenobarbital and Dilantin. Yeah, Ian was he was told that he had a grand mal seizure that night and yeah, he had to deal with the fact that uh, he was just recently diagnosed with epilepsy. You know, like seizures like that can happen when there's a sudden like a burst of electrical activity while your brain is like trying to send messages uh, along the, the nerve cells, which could lead to losing consciousness or uh, involuntary movements like shaking, falling to the floor, like what happened to him, which could be very dangerous. You know, if you hit your head on your way down or something like that. Mm-hmm. And these fits or these seizures, they were happening three or four times a week now. And it was possibly the worst timing ever for Ian because Debbie was super pregnant. Yeah. Like very pregnant. And that worried Debbie's parents. So they got them a, a telephone installed for emergencies. You, Ian couldn't go anywhere without telling Debbie first. Even if he went to the bathroom, he would have to leave the door unlocked just in case. Yeah. His mood swings got so much worse because of this like the guys in the band said like he seemed a little quieter uh easily irritated you know he was internalizing a lot of this a lot of his frustrations and dealing with the side effects of of the medications that he had to take every single day heavy medications it's phenobarbital you know it's very it is a very depressant yes it's a very very heavy depressant and later Bernard Sumner would blame the barbiturates Ian took for his epilepsy on the depression and confusion that led to Ian Curtis's eventual fate and there's no doubt that they were certainly a factor but ian curtis's epilepsy was so serious that he wouldn't have been able to function without these medications and anyway he most likely could have kept performing and creating while taking them had he taken the proper precautions and taken care of himself but the tragedy in ian curtis's eyes was that in the words of one band member Everything about being a rock artist was written out of Ian's script. No drinking, no drugs, no women, 
all because of the medication he had to take to survive. And that's all Ian Curtis wanted, was to be Iggy, was to be David Bowie, was to be Lou Reed. Even outside of that, he couldn't drive a car, he couldn't hold his daughter when she was born, he couldn't stand near a ledge, all because a fit might come at any moment. And at the same time, Ian also started showing signs of bipolar disorder, which shows up around the same time in a person's life as epilepsy, early 20s. Now, some speculate that the drugs caused the bipolar disorder in Ian Curtis, or at the very least, exacerbated something that was already there. That's interesting to me because the medication I've taken for my bipolar disorder these last 15 years is, in fact, a medication also used to treat epilepsy. I know. <laughs> I don't know how that works. but I don't know. The brain is a mystery. It is. Yeah, no, It's my psychiatrist has regularly told me that we are still in the fucking dark ages when it comes to understanding brain chemistry. We just don't fucking know. But the thing about Curtis's acceptance of his illness was that he didn't want anything to hold him back or to hold back the band. It wasn't just about him. It was also about the other guys. So he pushed himself constantly in service of a dream while also refusing the responsibility of taking care of himself the way he needed to. And also, the rest of Joy Division didn't really talk to him about it either because at the end of the day, there's still a bunch of fucking kids. Yeah. And on top of that, they had a very British sensibility of carrying on and not talking about it at all. Now, the biggest legend surrounding Ian Curtis's epilepsy was that it inspired his singular style of dancing on stage. But that isn't quite true. While Curtis's stiff flailing of his arms did look somewhat similar to a seizure, according to his wife, that's just how Ian danced. Yeah, well, Debbie did say that he did have that, that kind of dance, like the flailing and jerking around. And he did that at their engagement party four years earlier. And that was when Debbie's grandmother was like convinced that he was on drugs or something. <laughs> but it's, it's weird. He, he sticks his butt out. You know, he does. It, it's a very, it's a very uh, jerky, jerky. Yeah, yeah, very, very herky jerky. It's mesmerizing yeah. to watch. But also like. He was also really what Debbie said about the story about uh, the engagement party when he started dancing like that is the fact that he was really angry that night. Uh. So I don't know. It could be it could maybe be a passionate anger dance or or it it could be a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's very uh, it's very controlled, but it's very controlled in the way that you're trying to desperately keep control that you're about to fucking lose it, that everything is about to explode from you and you're doing everything you can to keep everything inside. That's what his dancing looks like to me. Yeah. Now, despite Ian's sickness, the band went full steam ahead. And in January of 1979, they were asked to perform on John Peel's radio show. Yeah, John Peel! For one of his famous Peel sessions. And this Peel session introduced the band to a wide audience in London for the first time. It had only been relatively a few months since their show at Electric Circus where Bernard had screamed about Rudolf Hess. Oh, yeah. When we talked about that last episode, it's like four months. I know. (laughs) Between these two things. Forgetting that. (laughs) But when London heard this version of Transmission, which was far beyond at a later date artistically, the offers started pouring in. Now, listen to the end of Transmission. Okay.
people's fucking minds. Yeah. Like that's exactly what they heard. That was from the Peel session right there. Uh, when people heard that, and it was a huge deal for the band too to be on fucking Peel sessions. Yeah. Because John Peel had already been a fan. He'd been playing songs from an ideal for living once he got the good version. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a fan. He was a supporter. And when people in London heard that, the fucking record deal started coming in. Now, the only deal that Joy Division seriously entertained was from Genetic Records, which was a part of Radar Records, which was a part of Stiff Records. And Stiff was a London label. That offer was for two albums and came with an advance of £70,000, which was an insane amount yeah. of money for a bunch of working class kids from Manchester and Salford. Like £70,000, Jesus fucking Christ. But Rob Gretton was a localist, again, with an abundance of civic pride, who rejected anything having to do with specifically London, and even had a catchphrase to go along with it. Very clever one. You ready for it? Fuck London. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I see your point. <laughs> All right. So Rob encouraged Joy Division to continue building their audience in Manchester, and building an audience in Manchester meant going with a Manchester record label. Namely, Factory Records. Yeah, and remember the business plan that Tony Wilson had with the with the bands, uh, with, with the label? Yeah, the well, bands own everything, the record company owns nothing, and the bands always have the freedom to fuck off. Yeah, exactly. They made that same deal with Joy Division, too. Although there was a little thing. <laughs> you see, there was this tiny little thing when they verbally agreed about uh, the revenue being split 50-50. There was also something called mechanical royalties, yeah. which for some reason meant that the split was actually 58-42 with the band getting the bigger half. And that important piece of information will pop up later in Tony's life. <laughs> later, later. Yeah, yeah, later. Later, later. Yeah, later on. Well, I mean, a lot of the people in the band were wanting to go with Genetic Records. Like, specifically, Ian wanted to go with Genetic Records because of that advance. That advance was really fucking big. He has really a pregnant wife. He has a pregnant wife. Yeah. He needs money now. But the thing is about an advance, and any of our listeners who are in bands right now should know this, an advance is not payment. An advance is a loan. Yeah. You have to pay that back. <laughs> that <is laughs> yeah. Not, like, that is not until you make that money back. If you don't make that money back, you will owe that money to the record company. I know, right? Yeah. And so Rob Gretton eventually convinced them uh, this is the deal with Factory Records is actually a much better deal. Mm -hmm. And so they went with Factory Records. You see, it's the best deal. Huh? <laughs> Who's talking about worst? And with the deal in place, Joy Division went into the studio to record their debut at Strawberry Studios and where else but Manchester. That album, of course, was Unknown Pleasure.
That's cool. Like uh, Bernard uh, said, he was he'd been listening to Ocean by uh, the Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. and he wanted to write a song like that. Like you can even hear like surf sound, like you know, rolling and then crash, yeah. like waves crash. Like it's cool. Like he's like, yes, I want to write a Velvet Underground song, and <laughs> it will come out not at all like a Velvet Underground song. <laughs> not even close. It's more fucking Black Sabbath than Velvet Underground. But it's it more has metal. Its roots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So April 1979, the band went to go record their first full-length album the for real this time yeah. <laughs> at strawberry studios and strawberry studios it's like one of the most well-equipped state-of-the-art studios around because it was owned by the band members of 10cc who made a load of money writing and recording pop songs for an american producer <laughs> <laughs> they're great pop songs so they put that money into the studio and modernized it like they really gave they they, they no expense spared and uh, 10CC then recorded all their albums there, including the original soundtrack mm-hmm. with one of my favorite songs. This is one of your favorite songs. Oh, I'm we- not in love. Oh. <laughs> I love this song. It's great. But this is one of your favorite songs. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. It's about. Okay, I'll tell you what it's about. Play the song. <laughs> Just a silly phase I'm going through And just because I call you up Don't get me wrong Don't think you got it made I'm not in love No, no how beautiful that sounds like they, they used uh tape loops on the, the vocals like it's all voices like over and over and over again and, and like and they would feed in this like this like i don't know the all the vocal tape loops and they would feed them in like i i'm not sure exactly with how technically they did it but they used the voices the all the the <laughs> stuff, and, and and the mixing board as the main instrument for that song oh, that's it's cool very impressive that's and very they cool they took away the guitars and they're like no we're just gonna do a lot of voices i don't know why it's that song cool is cool how they did that i don't know why the song is six minutes long though it's beautiful <laughs> so i'm not in love was written by uh eric stewart uh, from 10cc and it's because his wife of like they were married for like eight nine years or something and she's like you never say i love you enough and he's like yeah because it's gonna lose its meaning mm-hmm. so I'm going to come up with a new thing. I'm going to come up with I'm not in love. And then I'm going to write a song about it. Like our new thing is for me to say I'm not in love. And and then throughout the song, you'll start to realize the reasons why I need you. Oh, It's actually very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and they're still together after like 50 years. That's great. 
Yeah, I didn't. I'm just realizing this year how big of a 10cc fan you are. Because like <laughs> yeah. earlier this year, like we were driving around and Dreadlock Holiday came on the radio it's and my you jam. flipped out. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, it's, I don't like crickets. I don't, I don't like cricket. Like, <laughs> I love it. We can't do this. We got to go back to the show. <laughs> This week's episode of No Dogs in Space is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Alright, it's December, which means you can officially start watching Christmas movies. But, what if you go to Netflix and discover your favorite Christmas movie, Flubber, isn't available? Get ready to have your mind blown. You can use ExpressVPN to watch any Netflix library in the world. This weekend, I used ExpressVPN to stream a more classic Christmas flick. Gremlins on French Netflix. It was so simple. I just opened the app, hit one button to change my location, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. And it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Disney+, Plus, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, you name it. Not only that, but the watching experience is immaculate. HD streaming, fast speeds, and no buffering. And from any device, you can use phones, tablets, and smart TVs. So stop living a flubberless life. If you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash no dogs, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and get your holiday fix at expressvpn.com slash no dogs. Now, famously, Unknown Pleasures was produced once again by Martin Hannett, but it was during the Unknown Pleasures sessions that the band truly got a window into both the madness and genius of the producer, because those two things with Martin Hannett were often one and the same. Hannett later said that Joy Division were a gift because they didn't have a clue what they were doing in the studio, and therefore, he could do whatever he wanted with their songs and whatever he wanted with their sound. As such, during recordings, he'd give bizarre directives that nevertheless still kind of made sense. <laughs> if they? you think about Did it, they? he'd say, do it again, but a bit more yellow, faster, <laughs> but slower. Do it more cocktail party, meaner, but kinder. A bit on the buttery side, but fine, we'll go with it. That's Yeah, that, those are the directions he would give them. I mean, <laughs> Peter said that as he was going in to like, go record in, in the booth, Martin would grab his arm and say, go in and be magnificent, but humble. <laughs> yeah, okay. When he says faster but slower, I know exactly what he's talking about. Okay. Meaner but kinder? I get it. Kinda. Kinda get it. And Martin would always complain about how like musicians got in the way of recording an album. It's <laughs> my favorite thing. Because he, he hated having musicians around when he was working. He would like yell at the top of his lungs like, you know, from the mixing board. He'd be like, get these cunts out of here. <laughs> I'm trying to work. And Peter and Vernon would look at each other in the back and be like, is he talking about us? <laughs> yeah, but, I, but it's our album though. I, I don't know. I think we should leave. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, because that's Martin. That's Martin. Yeah, that's who he is. That's Martin. Also, very fond of calling the band the R word. What? 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 what uh, oh, I get it. I get it. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I get it now. <laughs> very fond of that. Well, furthermore, Martin got a little nuts with the drums. On some tracks, he recorded each piece on the drum kit individually in order to completely remove bleed from the tom to the snare or to the cymbal to the tom or the bass drum to the snare and so on and so forth. As a drummer, this sounds fucking impossible. Yeah, you know what? It does sound crazy because Martin would make Steven play for hours on each drum. Like like he explained it in, in his book. Like, uh, you know, you hear the drums like a boom, crack, boom, crack. Mm -hmm. So he would have to do boom, boom, boom. And then the crack, 
Correct. Like later, like a, a, the next track recording of yeah. the song, you know, so you do it all separately and and he do it all night and probably asking Martin, like, is there any specific reason why I have to do this <laughs> or is it or is this a break my spirit? Well, Martin had it never explained himself. Yeah, no, but <laughs> Stephen didn't get it. He went along with it for many of the songs. I mean, luckily, it wasn't all. It was like half of the songs of the album. It's a lot of but songs. I feel like I, I think I get it, though. I think yeah. it's the, the reason maybe could be that uh, since. Stephen is not doing it completely like 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 a, like let's say like a in a human kind of way. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's a little bit more detached uh, because it's been put together. So maybe that's why. Absolutely, like a little slightly jarring. Well, one of the uh, you know the 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 adjectives that get used with unknown pleasures a lot are atmospheric. Uh, expansive, spacious, uh, and that's part of the reason why is the 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 way that he recorded the drums like that, like completely separate, uh, treating him almost like a drum machine, uh, because those drums are very isolated. Every but everything is still a cohesive unit. Like it, it is, everything is very cohesive in this record. But it feels like the band itself is isolated from everybody else <laughs> and from everything else it feels like they're floating in space but not in a good way it's not like <laughs> hawkwind where it's like in search of space masters of the universe like they're not having a good time in space they're having a very very bad time there is that what it is they're lost oh they're lost lost in space <laughs> lost in space as far as the lyrics to the album went it's hard to hear them knowing what we know now and not hear the words as an obvious diary of pain and isolation that captures the seemingly infinite nature of depression. And I can definitely see criticisms from people who don't necessarily have experience with depression when they say that the album is a bit dour. But for those of us who deal with it every single day, lines like distorted and thin, where will it end? Go right to the fucking core insane thing about Ian Curtis's songwriting is that not a single person around him saw that there was anything wrong. Not even as much as someone saying like, you doing okay, bud? Those lyrics sound a little sad. Do you want to talk about it? Nobody. Nobody. Well, also, a lot of times they didn't hear the lyrics yeah, over like, the, their shitty PAs. Exactly. I mean, for most people, he was a fun, If it, he was explosively temperamental at times. He yeah. was very moody. But he was still fun. No one thought of Ian Curtis as depressed. As Debbie Curtis later wrote, it was too difficult to comprehend that he would use such a public method as a cry for help. And as far as the band went, they only read Ian's lyrics after Debbie Curtis published him, after Ian Curtis died. And they actually said, 
my God, is that what he was singing? Yeah. They didn't know. That's because now we can see that incorporated into those lyrics were Ian Curtis's own fears, his own demons, and his own battles. Things that nobody at the time knew he was going through. But on one song, perhaps the album's most well-known track, he combined his own fear of epilepsy with the experiences of one of the clients at his civil service job. Yeah, I know. This is a weird coincidence because Ian had a job in the government as an assistant disablement resettlement officer, which which meant he worked with many disabled people to help them claim their benefits. And he cared so deeply for them. Actually, this is a job that he found rewarding. And so he would take care of his disabled clients. And he was so good at his job that his department sent him to take a course on epilepsy. Yeah. So this is just a year before he was diagnosed with epilepsy. It's the craziest thing that he's like, wow, I can't believe like I learned everything about it. I guess now I know what to do. But it's, it's a coincidence. Huge coincidence. And Ian told Debbie about one of his clients, a young girl who she she had a seizure and she choked in her sleep. She died. And so every night Ian would stay up and sit on a chair or lay in bed with Debbie and she would hear his breathing and wait until he had a seizure before he went to sleep because he was afraid of dying in his sleep. I yeah. mean, this is a nightly thing of being worried about your own life every single night. Every single night. And he combined his own fears with the story of that client, the girl who died, the girl with epilepsy. And he combined those stories for She's Lost Control. song how the the instrumentals like start working against each other like they start descending and ascending in different ways you know going like crisscrossing and moving and it's it's very uh it's very disorienting you know the way the just like you know a seizure has to be yeah it's a terrifying song (laughs) yeah (laughs) it really is losing control that's that's exactly what it is yeah yeah and speaking of instrumentation there's, of course, the lead-off track, Disorder, which showcases the innovation of everybody involved, from Peter Hook's unconventional bass playing and Bernard Sumner's deceptively simple guitar to Martin Hannett's unsettling science fiction swells and signals.
night stares into no man's land Lights are flashing, cars are crashing, getting frequent now I've got the spirit, lose the feeling, let it out somehow <laughs> You're right. There is a soundscape. There's very much a soundscape. And this uh, album is full of soundscapes. You know, that Martin Hannett would record an elevator going up and down. And he put that in the album. There's breaking glass. They would break glass and they put that in the album. Cool. Uh, there's so many things like that throughout. And, you know, as such, the record sounds unusual. It's a weird fucking record. Yeah. But that's what they wanted. They wanted low. They wanted the idiot. They wanted Hawkwind, Krautrock, and Kraftwerk. Yeah. Or at least that's what Ian and Steve wanted. The more cerebral members. <laughs> Peter and Bernard, they wanted it raw. They wanted it loud. They wanted it passionate. As Stephen Morris put it, from Peter and Bernard's perspective, the rawness of Joy Division Live had evaporated and only the ghosts of the songs remain. Well, yeah, because a lot of times when you, I mean, when you listen back to something you're recording, you're like, where's my guitar? <laughs> you know, like if you think maybe your instrument's not being heard enough, mm -hmm. even if it's not the best thing for the song, whatever it may be, um, maybe they felt like, well, what are we doing here? Well, they felt it was thin. They thought it was thin. They thought it was tinny. It yeah, wasn't but it, but full. But it's atmospheric, though. Yeah, well, that's not what they weren't interested in. Peter Hook wasn't interested in depth. <laughs> you know, like that, that's, he said, that is a direct yeah. quote from me. He said, I wasn't interested in depth. I wanted to kick them in the teeth. I wanted to lop their heads off. He wanted Joy Division to sound like they did live. That was his and Bernard's version of Joy Division. Instead, it sounded like Martin Hannett's version of Joy Division. And to this day, Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner say that the only thing they agree on is that they're the only two guys in the world who don't like unknown pleasures. <laughs> well, you know. They don't fine. like it. They do <laughs> but isn't it cool to have two different kinds of joy? I mean, it's not anymore because they don't play live. And you, that, that ended a long, long time ago. Long, long time ago. But, but at least there were two options back then. Yeah, but that said, Bernard Sumner admitted that while you know him and Peter were, uh, in Bernard's words, just the poor, stupid musicians who wrote the fucking music. <laughs> They'd drawn a picture in black and white, and Martin Hannett had colored it in for them. To fans and critics, though, Unknown Pleasures was, and still is, a revelation. One person called it a science fiction interpretation of Manchester, and the general consensus is that it sounds just as fresh in 2020 as it did in 1979, which ain't always the case with the albums of that era. And there are, of course, some who say that Unknown Pleasures is the most overrated album of all time. And to be completely honest, I again see where you're coming from on that. I mean, the importance of Unknown Pleasures is immeasurable as mm -hmm. far as influence goes. But if I might make a bit of a music nerd confession here, I actually don't like half the songs on this album. A couple of them are not so great. <laughs> I think. But, yeah. I, but I do appreciate the artistry. And it was sometimes, of course. But yeah, you're right. There's some songs that you just kind of like, yeah, let's skip to the next one. I'm going to skip past Candidate. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm going to skip past that one. Uh, yeah, I don't like every song on the album. Uh, but the songs I do like, I fucking love. And there's no denying that the sound Martin Hannett produced and the songs Joy Division wrote informed the direction of music for decades after the album's release. Yeah, that part is true. <laughs> that part is absolutely true. 
But even outside of the music itself, perhaps what people know Unknown Pleasures the most for is the album cover, which has been printed, reprinted, parodied, and remixed thousands of times since its release. I know. You showed me the one with Frasier on it, which I really want now. Yeah, the fake handshake, mate. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the album cover. It, it's a photo of a graphic representation of a pulsar. It's, it's the sound waves of a dying star. Yeah. Which is so deep and cool. Anyways. <laughs> well, it's very Joy Division when you find yes. it's like, it's... The sound wave of a dying star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put your foot on my heart. Uh, Bernard, well, the thing is, Bernard was like in the library, like going through books like he did for the, the Hitler Youth thing. <laughs> he was doing the same thing. And he found in a, an encyclopedia of astronomy, he found the photo of the pulsar and it looked so cool. And it was just the right image for their album cover. So he gave it to Peter Saville to work on. Remember Peter Saville, the, the guy from Factory? Yes. Yeah. He's like the in-house like artist. Yeah, right? he's right? a design guy. Yeah, exactly. So the photo of the Pulsar uh, had like a white background with a black ink on it. Mm -hmm. But Peter inverted the color so it became white lines over a black background and then reduced it to a much smaller size. And that was pretty much it. I mean, there was time for lunch. <laughs> but it was brilliant, though. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, but what he said, he actually hadn't heard the album when he made the cover. He uh, he didn't hear Unknown yeah. Pleasures before until it came out. Because uh, he said what he was trying to do was uh, make a record that he would buy. Uh, that he would be flipping through and the records enough. and see a cover. Yeah. He's like, I would buy that record just based on the cover alone. And that's absolutely enough. Uh, and the funny thing is that like, Stephen Morris talks about it in his book uh, about how ubiquitous unknown pleasures is the cover is on t-shirts and he like somewhat makes fun of the reader he's like bet you've got one i know you've got one you fucking <laughs> asshole you I, dickhead you've got one i don't have one yet <laughs> i'm not a dickhead <laughs> what was interesting though was that right in the middle of the recording of unknown pleasures debbie curtis gave birth to their daughter natalie yeah, well, when Debbie was at the doctor's, like, around that time, uh, she was, like, really ready to pop. Uh, she was told that she'd be induced on April 16th. And the night before that day, Ian Debbie decided to sit on the couch and have a night and watch a documentary on the Nuremberg trials. Yep. Okay, let's As do that. Is their want. Yes. And then, well, we do that. Yeah, of course. I know. That is also our want. <laughs> so they're sitting there, and Ian turns to Debbie and said the weirdest thing. He goes... I can't imagine another person here with us, right? And Debbie was like, okay. <laughs> could so, be taken either way. It could be taken either way. Maybe it could be marveled by it. Who knows? Uh -huh. So she just went upstairs a little weirded out. And as soon as she sat on the bed, her water broke. Ooh. She's like, guess what, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> that imagining is going to be a reality. So Ian put Debbie in an ambulance that night, but he didn't come to the hospital until the next day. Debbie thought that was also like a little weird, but... That, that he wasn't going to come. But she also knew that Ian was probably really kind of scared about the new baby. There was a lot of emotions there. It's terrifying. Yeah, but once Ian met Natalie, their newborn baby girl, he was just completely filled with joy. <laughs> the cute little baby, totally enraptured by her. And after a few days when it was time for Debbie to come home, Ian's demeanor completely changed again. Yeah. Like, I, and I think it was... And I think Debbie also says this. He was probably worried about his epilepsy yeah. and, and and the baby and the baby's safety and the fact that he didn't know what to do with the fact that he might get a seizure. And uh, so I, I think a lot of times when he was very moody towards Debbie, he's taking out on her, not considering her feelings right now because she just birthed a baby, mm. uh, that he just 
had trouble. He had trouble dealing with this. Of course. Like, you know, now Joy Division is doing great. And Debbie is a full time mother. You know, so he would sometimes forget about her. I mean, he didn't want her to come to gigs anymore. He wanted to keep his life separate. Like they had this no girlfriends or wives rule. Uh, that was Rob's rule. Yeah, that was. <laughs> so, but they all like pinned it on. The oh, other yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's darling. It's Rob. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Unless the gig was in town. Yeah. But out of town, like no, no one's allowed. So. So they were already, Ian and Debbie are, were already drifting apart in so many ways. They really were. And on top of that, soon after the release of Unknown Pleasures, Ian Curtis began having seizures on stage. In Liverpool, he had a fit during this song, New Dawn Fades, and was carried off stage in the middle of the show. actually the one song Debbie Curtis was like oh there's something wrong here because yeah. that song's pretty much about them yeah well. <laughs> but you know speaking about this show where he had a seizure since he didn't want to be a bother and since the other guys in the band admitted they just didn't ever really want to talk about his epilepsy ever he came back for inner zone and the band finished the set and he did that so many times over the next year or so. The band ill-advisedly carried on after that because really they could have stopped at any moment and said, yeah. let's figure this out. And they had fully admit to this later on. They said they could have stopped at any moment and said, let's figure this out. Let's figure out how Ian can be healthy and still come on the road with us, how everybody can be at the very least tolerable uh, towards each other. Uh, but they didn't. They just well, kept going because Ian kept saying, I'm yeah, fine. Yeah, same went with Ian, yeah. Yeah, Ian kept saying, I'm fine, I can do it. And they said, okay, if you say you can do it, then it's totally fine. And they ill-advisedly carried on. And two days after the seizure on stage in Liverpool, Joy Division played the Nashville Rooms in London. And they're getting positive validation because this was the first place where the band saw the audience mouthing along to the lyrics as they were playing, which Peter described as being both thrilling and embarrassing. All at the same time. Back home in Manchester, Joy Division was bigger than ever. Hometown boys done good. Yeah. And they continued playing bigger and bigger shows while riding perhaps a little too high on unknown pleasures. 
At one show at the Russell Club on Factory Night, Joy Division played a show with Teardrop Explodes and Foreign Press. And it's there that Peter met a magician named Dr. Silk. Yeah. (laughs) That's his name. Dr. Silk. Dr. Silk was a friend of Bernard's from work who do sleight of hand tricks during conversation, which was impressive at first, but very quickly became tiresome for obvious reasons. I don't know. I think it's cool. If you were talking to a guy, like if he was doing it the first like three minutes you were talking to him, that'd be fine. But imagine having a 30 minute conversation with someone and he's doing sleight of hand tricks. Ha ha. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yes, that's very interesting. But do you see where the quarter is gone? No longer here. It's in my ear. It's in my ear. <laughs> do it again. Do it. See, I'm a little different. You're a little different. You're a little different. I would find it very amusing at first. Very annoying very quickly. <laughs> Dr. Silk also didn't drink, which annoyed both Peter and Joy Division's new roadie, Twenty. So, because they were young dickheads, they took him down to the pub after soundcheck for that night's factory show and tried getting Dr. Silk drunk before the show. Their plan was to pour double vodka shots into Dr. Silk's tomato juice while he wasn't looking, as if he wouldn't fucking notice. And when they saw he wasn't getting drunk, they started pouring triple and quadruple shots. Within an hour, Peter and Twinnie were wasted. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Silk was still sober because Dr. Silk, being a master of illusion, had been swapping drinks with these clever boys the whole time. But Peter, now wasted beyond repair, still had to play the show. And while he doesn't remember any of what happened that night, the blackout was eventful enough where the press covered it in the papers the next day. He did talk about it in his book, though. So I think maybe he came to or someone told him what happened. Somebody told him what happened because he <laughs> yeah. said he's like, I think he talked about it in the uh, documentary. He's like, oh, that night. Don't remember anything. Well, that's an easy excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fully you know, admits he did wrong. Peter and Twitty, yes, got trashed. <laughs> and you know what? They deserved it. <laughs> so Peter was trashed by the time they had to go on at the factory. And he's just staggering on stage, you know, which already annoyed the rest of the band because he didn't even know that Ian already had a seizure that night again. Yeah. and But uh. he got himself together for the show. So... They go and they play their set. The set's going great until around towards the end. During a song, Peter went up to Steven and said, Faster! Yeah, play faster! (laughs) Play fast, fuck. And Steven's like, I'm trying, dude. I'm doing as fast as I can. Because Peter is just like so amped up and he's just so drunk. And and also the audience, they were really digging the music so much that they were like in a frenzy. Like a mosh pit even started in front of the stage. And as the crowd were up front and they were like going crazy, Peter saw this one kid like just this young kid wearing like a bunch of like Joy Division pins or badges on his jacket and he was up front like mouthing words to this all the songs and he's like oh look at that and right behind him though was this like big lug of a bully <laughs> who grabbed that kid by his hair and punched him right in the face Jesus for no reason and so that pissed off Peter <laughs> drunk drunk Peter so he pulled his bass guitar off his shoulder he grabbed it by the neck like a baseball bat and swung it super hard towards a bully <laughs> except he didn't even connect because <laughs> he was drunk so he fell because of the weight of the, uh, the momentum the, yeah <laughs> the weight of the bass he fell into the mosh pit where they're like all the fans like just kind of like you know enveloped around him (laughs) while he was on the floor getting kicked repeatedly in the head. And you know what the rest of the band was doing? They were still playing. (laughs) 
Yeah, no one went to his rescue except for their roadie, Twinny, mm-hmm. who was, remember, he got trashed with Peter. Yeah. And so Twinny, he came to the rescue. He like pretty much like swan dived off stage <laughs> to go rescue Peter, you know, just swinging his fists around to push the crowd back to get Peter up on his feet. Then the roadie grabbed the bully by his neck. And with Peter, they shoved him all the way to the back, to, to the mixing desk. And they started beating him up and just punching him left and right until they heard, the, I'm a fed, I'm a fed, I'm a fed. Uh, it turns out, uh, probably because they were so trashed, they grabbed the wrong person. <laughs> they grabbed the kid with all the Joy Division pins. Yes, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes. We did beat him up by accident. It was an accident. So it's gonna be the worst night for him. He's the biggest Joy Division fan, and then he's getting beat up by the bassist. <laughs> and then like Peter like doesn't even have time to like really like acknowledge this, and uh, he was gonna be like. Dude, I'm, I'm sorry. He's like trying yeah. to straighten up his jacket. <laughs> he, they were quickly pulled apart by the crowd. So Peter eventually like just stumbles back on stage while the band is still playing their song mm. and screams at them like, you twats, I was getting kicked out there. <laughs> Where were you? So Peter storms out and runs into the dressing room and he just sits on the couch and he's all rattled and bruised and really angry uh, about everything. And he grabbed the bottle from the table and he just threw it against the wall, barely just missing Ian, who was walking in to stretch him to see <laughs> how he was doing. So Twinny, the roadie, he quit on the spot. And he told each and every one of the band members what he really thought of them. Ugh. He's just letting them have it. And he's just like, I'm never doing this again. You guys are insane. I, this is not worth it. And then he walked out of the dressing room because he was just done with them. And then he was immediately stopped, actually, by the tour manager of the Buzzcocks, who said, Ben... Twenty, that was amazing what you just did. You want to do security for the Buscocks tour? We'll pay you more than what you get from them. And Twenty thought about it for a second. And then went back into the dressing room and said, on second thought, I think I'm going to come back and work with you guys. I do not want to get into any more fights. And I'm sorry about all the other stuff I said. Are we cool? And so, you know, they finally all calmed down. Yeah. Peter sobered up and he had to do his rounds of apologizing to everyone because everyone was really mad at him. Of course. Uh, but And he got like a stern lecture from Rob about, you know, oh, you messed everything up. But I think Rob was secretly amused by this because uh, they did get a lot of publicity. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, yeah what are you going to do? It seemed like despite the band's antics and Ian Curtis's mounting health problems, Joy Division was still on an upward trajectory. But things were about to get far worse for Ian in particular, both physically and emotionally, even though there still were a lot of good times ahead. Around the time of the brawl at the factory, a young Belgian journalist named Anique Honoré found her way into the band's orbit. And it's with Anique in the emotional affair that followed that will begin the conclusion to our series on Joy Division. It's going to get dark next yeah, episode. Yeah, really? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I know, I know there's it good, is. I mean, there's going to be, there, there's still a lot of fun to be had, but yeah, I mean, next, everyone knows what we're going to be talking about next episode. Yeah, but at least we're watching them, like you said, a trajectory, you yeah. know, like, I mean, in the beginning. Upward, not downward. Upward. Yeah. Yes, they're going up. I'm sorry, you can't see my hand. Uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, remember, they were outsiders. Like, no one wanted to talk to them. No one wanted to book them. And now, now they're finally, like, selling out clubs and then they're doing great and they have an album that everyone loves everyone except for peter (laughs) i mean they're getting the respect that they they always needed they always felt like they deserved it's there and 
There's, of course, a lot of bad to go along with that good. <laughs> yeah. Which we'll talk about. Uh, thank you very much for listening, oh, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. This is Joy Division Part 3. Joy Division Part 4 is coming next week. Of course, if you want some No Dogs in Space merch, if you want a No Dogs in Space t-shirt, we have them for sale over on lastpodcastmerch.com. Uh, Done by Matt Wise. They're wonderful shirts. Yeah. Very comfy and very stylish. <laughs> and of course, uh, follow us on uh, Instagram. Yes. Uh, no Dogs Pod, where we post, you know, cool shit about, um, you know, the bands that we're covering, fun pictures, rare stuff uh, that you might not have seen before. And you also uh, get to know uh, exactly when the show is released, which is, of course, uh, by as you know by now. You're, you're listening o- to it. it. You just heard it. Just heard it. But it comes out every <laughs> other Thursday. Everyone knows it comes out every other Thursday. But. <laughs> You know, just so you know exactly when it comes out, uh, No Dogs Pod is uh, where to listen there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, at the end of every single episode, uh, we play uh, a track from a band uh, yes. from our listeners out there. Yes. Thank you so much. So many bands, so many artists uh, have just sent us like a ton, a ton of stuff, which is great. And we really appreciate it. I, I love going through them. Uh, if you make music, you make noise, anything at all, and, and you want us to hear it and then potentially put it on at the end of the show, all you got to do is go to nodogsinspace at gmail.com. Yep, just send it on over. And yeah, I've been listening to a lot of it lately too. God damn, you guys are talented. I mean, it's fucking insane. Yeah, how many we good, got a how list many, going. <laughs> we have a very long list. Uh, and uh, the next band on that list is out of Lexington, Kentucky, the Jive Hounds. This is a single that they just released uh, earlier this year. This shit is great. It's like a combination of the Velvet Underground and the Ramones with a little bit of New York Dolls thrown in. Uh, it's right up our alley. That's so cool. It's, it's really fucking good. And they've also got like a few uh, EPs. Their Prom Night EP is fucking great. Uh, the song Susie is really fucking cool. Uh, yeah, I, I, I recommend this band uh, wholeheartedly. They're fucking awesome. But yeah, here is the Jive Hounds. We'll be back in two weeks with the conclusion uh, to Joy Division. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. All right. Goodbye. 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 Living in the rough part of the city, it just ain't that bad. But just to have to know a good time, baby, because life's a drag. Well, I got my little switchblade If you don't mind asking Well, I got my little switchblade If you want some action no oh, oh, oh I got my little switchblade Hey, hey I got my little She don't walk too much I got a little Cadillac coupe And it don't roll too much well, I got my little switchblade If you don't mind asking well, I got my little switchblade If you want some action no oh, oh.
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you 